I do like to plan, but then leave enough space on set that you can still adapt and change. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In today's episode, an ex-con faces a rough homecoming in director Nora Fingscheidt's drama, The Unforgivable. The film tells the story of Ruth Slater, a woman recently released from prison after serving a sentence for a violent crime. As she attempts to re-enter a society that refuses to forgive her past, her only hope for redemption is finding the estranged younger sister she was forced to leave behind. In addition to The Unforgivable, Ms. Fingscheidt's directorial credits include the feature films System Crasher and Brutaline, and the documentary Ona Diza Velt. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Ms. Fingscheidt shares insight into the making of The Unforgivable with fellow director Susie Unessi. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. This is so exciting to be sitting with you. What an incredible film. So much tension, so much heart and darkness. Um, I'm just such a fan. And it's so exciting to be here with everyone to see the number one film on Netflix. (laughs) So congratulations. How's that feel? Um, Fantastic. Very, very exciting. Um, Although it happens somewhere far away, so it's also a little bit surreal, you know. We've been sitting with the film for so long and now a lot of people are watching it. But since we're not in the theater together, now we are. It's a very new experience for me. Well, I was fortunate to watch it last night streaming, but seeing it big and projected, there's just so much magic to what you've created in that performance is so compelling. And I'd love to overall just focus on, because also seeing your film System Crasher, which is also available on Netflix and such a triumph. (laughs) These two films together show how, as a director, you're able to explore darkness with such heart. And I'd love to hear about your process, hear about how you came to this project, but also hear in those performances how you find such heart in these characters and navigate that place between goodness and darkness that we can find in each of us. So maybe we could start by hearing about how you came to the project. It was a big surprise for me, to be honest. Um, I had directed one feature film you mentioned System Crusher in, in German language. Before that, a documentary. And then um, producer Veronica Ferris, she had seen System Crusher at the Berlin Film Festival and, and reached out and said, I, I'm co-producing a project um, with Sandra Bullock and I think you would be a great fit for that story and do you want to read the script? And I mean, <laughs> I, I, I thought, of course, yeah, sure, I'll read the script. But um, honestly, I had no idea that that would somehow have anything to do with reality. I, I read it more out of interest um, to read a Hollywood script. And and she she said, well, is it okay if I forward your link to Graham King and Sandra Bullock and I'm like yeah sure and and I thought okay this is it already you know they they watched my movie how cool is that and um probably you know nothing's going to come out of it 
And a little bit of time passed and then they had watched the film and reached out and, and, and Graham said, let's, let's meet. I'm coming to London. And all of a sudden I was flying to London and then things happened very quickly and we had a great meeting. Um, I had a lot of questions for him at that meeting. I came prepared with, I think, two pages full of questions because I thought I'd, I'd be probably so nervous that I'll forget everything. So, so I, I came to interview him basically. And, and I think it was somehow, you know, we, it was a good match. And then he said, you know, next thing is come to LA and meet Sandy. And I came to LA and met Sandy and got the job. It was, uh, well, I mean, not without the three of us going to Netflix, of course, you know, but during that LA trip, at the end of the trip, it was clear we're making the film. And um, yeah, that's that's how this journey started. So exciting. If we pedal back to that meeting and the questions that you had, did you come to the meeting more with, in your process, are you more focused on the macro of the script in that moment? Are you thinking of visuals and references of that or was it more focused on the pages and the overarching arc of the film? Both. I had so many questions, like really honest questions. It started off with how realistic does Sandy want to be as Ruth Slater? Like, because I mean, I had never seen her in such a role. So that was, I think my biggest question is that, is it supposed to be a very Hollywoody version of a cop killer or are we going to go more into the realism or, you know, um, and I had a few questions about that. How are we going to, you know, what are we going to do visually? And then it was a lot of backstory questions about the characters, like the, the adoptive parents, you know, I wanted to know, like, did they read the letters or not? What's, what's about them and what's their approach compared to the original BBC series that I had seen, uh, which is, has a much slower pace and tone to it. And then I had a lot of production questions, like, because I have never been on a, on a Hollywood film set for a short, for, of course. So I was asking like, how many shooting days and how are we going to deal with the fact that I'm not a non-native speaker? And, um, <laughs> which scared me, it still scares me till today, you know, when I have situations where I think like, oh God, it does make a difference if it's your mother language or not, especially when it comes to working with actors. Um, and you need to go into fine tuning of language, which I don't have access to and never will in the depth of a native speaker. So yeah, all kinds of questions. <laughs> might actually be your superpower since oftentimes we might have too many words to, <laughs> to share. So you're probably very precise as a director. Mm. I wish. No, it, to be honest, no. Because uh, I think, you know, for a word like angry or something, you would know so many nuances and words that, I mean, my, my son now goes to school here because we've been here for two years and, and I'm always like when he has language arts and he's supposed to write stories and then they learn all this amazing adjectives. And, and then I always ask like, if you can teach me some, like gargantuan is a word that I learned recently where, and, and, um, reconcile is, is the word of the week, you know, that I, I had not known before. So it does require something more from the actor who works with me because sometimes, you know, yes, I might 
use less words, but it's also a little bit more clunky. It's like you dance, but in wooden shoes. And it's not, you know, so, so the actor or actress has to do an extra effort in terms of, okay, what she trying to say. But there is a beauty in that process as well. It depends, you know, some people want to go there for others. It's like a little bit not, not so, um, enjoyable maybe. Um, but, but I have had the experience since I was working with so many different actors that, uh, sometimes it can be even very liberating if, if, if the other one has to bring so much by him or herself as well. Sandra Bullock's performance that you've crafted with her, so compelling, so grounded in reality. And there are certain turns that are just the moment at the table where she realizes that her sister doesn't remember what happened. Such a powerful moment. So I'd love to hear about how you went about working together to craft and build that performance and what your process is with the actor. Was there rehearsal? Was there, what, what were you working from when you went to set? Well, um, so the process with Sandy was very different, of course, um, than with all the other actors, because she has been there from my very first day on the project until the very last day of the final mix, because she's also a producer. Um, so we had so much time. I remember again, first, first time meeting Sandy, I came with another list <laughs> I tend to do these, you know, word documents to hold on to. And in, in case I got, I got, you know, starstruck or um, nervous again, it was a document I had also sent it out via email the night before with thoughts about Ruth Slater, three pages, you know, of, of, of notes about the character. And that was, that was a great start for us because it was really something on paper that we could talk about. And one thing that she really responded to was that I thought Ruth has to be very shy at first and um, has to have a very close surface that opens up through the movie gradually because I thought, I mean, she had to hide so much in herself for 20 years and completely adapt that role of the cop killer. Um not in terms of a disguise, but in terms of incorporating it because she really feels guilty for having made her little sister do that. So it's not that she's pretending to be a cop killer. She feels guilt, really true guilt. And then she has to survive in prison mode at the same time, of course, worrying about her little sister and what's happening out there and how she's going to do and then never hearing back. So there's so much pain hidden that we thought she's like this super tough nut, you know, with a super hard shell that gradually over the process of the whole movie opens, 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 opens. After, after half the film, you know, there is half this smirk on her face when she's in the car with Blake, John Bernthal's character. And you already feel like, woof, you know, the sun is rising because she was so closed. And then in the end, when it opens up so much that it erupts, basically like a volcano. That was where we set the journey off. And then so many layers came, you know, of visualization of how is Ruth now? How was Ruth earlier? We went different ways of young Ruth, you know, is she more like a bold girl, more punky? We ended up with this. At first we had a more sort of 
elegant version of her, which didn't quite feel right. Yeah, it's it's hard to describe in short because it has been a process of two years. But to your question about rehearsing or not, I love to rehearse the day before. I'm not a big fan of rehearsing on set before shooting. Um, rehearsing the day before on set isn't always possible because you have a shooting schedule to skip to stick to and people need to go home in order to have enough turnover time, uh, turnaround time. So if possible, we did that or we did at least a reading, you know, and it doesn't need to be in a three hour rehearsal. It can just be half an hour, 45 minutes. And you read the scene ideally on location with the DOP if possible. And then you can already see what sort of works and what doesn't work. And I always say, just don't throw everything out there, you know, just rehearse with like 70% or something. And then everybody can go home and sleep over it. And I have time to figure out what parts need to be adjusted maybe, or how can we change our camera plan in order to capture the moment. And then next day we do one cold read and we shoot. Ideally, it's not always possible, but I, I personally love that that process. And what about your process with children? In your first film, but also this film, those performances are so powerful and feel so grounded in truth. So how are you working with the kids to get that kind of performance? Well, it's, it's very, very different than working with adults. And it starts in casting already because, um, you have to invest a lot of time in casting to find out how far can I go with that kid? Where does she feel safe or where is, what's her talent and what are the things that she naturally tends to do? And because on set with all the time pressure, the time pressure on set is always tricky for, for, for the creative freedom of actors, I feel, you know, that's why I don't like to rehearse directly before, because when they have questions and then everybody's like looking on the watch already, there's not enough space for, for those questions. So with kids, I tend to take a lot of time during casting. Sometimes I do several casting rounds because I feel like, okay, in the first casting round, I can see that that child has an incredible camera presence and can focus and can forget that there's a camera, right? I mean, some kids can't. And it, it will be always then, if you have a kid that always tends to look in the camera, it will be very tricky to get that out because kids tend to be curious, you know, and of course that massive machine that's directly in front of your face is something very interesting. You know, I, I would be staring at it all the time. So, um, finding the right kid, having enough of preparation time with the kid beforehand so that the kid feels super safe when coming to set, knowing what is happening and then letting a take run and run and not cut between takes so that the kid can sort of stay in the mind space, you know, um, that helps as well. Another powerful scene was when Viola Davis and Sandra Bullock were on screen and the she was just five years old. How did you navigate the levels in that scene and the arc of that scene? And how many notes were you giving throughout that scene or were you just letting it play out? The scene was shot, as you know, we had to shut down because of COVID. So we shot six weeks and then 
you know, mid-March 2020, we shut down for an unknown period of time. Um, and then once we knew, okay, we, we, we will come back. And now it was September, five months had passed. All of a sudden it was not winter. It was blooming summer, you know, and some, we, we had not shot chronologically, of course. So we had to, you know, it was super complicated. Plus the actors had to be six feet apart, scenes outside as much as possible. If they come closer without masks, Closer than six feet, you have, I had 15 minutes per day, you know, somebody with a stopwatch on set that, that is super complicated craft wise, you know, you have to prepare very different. And that scene was on shooting day two of that COVID block. So, um, I remember, you know, it was super challenging because we had masks and goggles and shields, you know, and me with a German accent, the DOP with his Mexican accent, nobody understood us. You know, everybody was like, what? And we were trying to figure out as a team how to work with COVID. And then that scene, that is, it was so clear, the movie stands or falls with that scene. Um, the pressure was super high. The, be- the great thing is we had ex- a lot of time during the break to work on the dialogue lines of that scene on the first day of shooting, we did a little rehearsal, a read through on location with Sandy and Viola. So we had all sort of been there, what the scene would feel like. And then when we shot, you know, I try to make sure first of all, that the team is super quiet and sort of far away so that they can concentrate as much as possible that we move as fast as we can between takes so that especially Sandy can stay in that emotion. And uh, we shot it with three cameras um, to not having to do too many setups. And I think we did on Sandy, we did five or six takes, maybe five, which is still a lot for such a scene. And after the second take, our, our, our sound man, he came to me and he said, I'm, I'm doing this job. I mean, he didn't say it after take two, he said it at the end of the shooting day, but he said after take two, he had to cry and he's doing the job for 25 years and he had never cried on set before, which, which was amazing. But to answer your question, um, the directions that I gave, you know, first, with actresses of that caliber anyways, but probably with, with any other actress that well has to play such a scene, you let it happen. And second take also. And then, you know, I try to be there for the moments when they need me. I listen, you know, because sometimes some, Nora, something doesn't feel right. What can we do here? And if there were was any adjustment from my side, it was like the layer of how aggressive does Ruth come in at the very beginning, it was more about this, um, level of how desperate or how angry is she, you know? Um, yeah, there we tried it a few variations. But you had also mentioned a Microsoft work word document you had. So I'm curious about your paper trail on the film, because even the cinematography of this film, of your first film, so incredible. How, what is your paper trail? Do you have shot lists? Do you do character arc breakdowns or do you work in a, do you use scriptation or any 
programs on set or do you do storyboards? We, we didn't do storyboards for the first half. And we did storyboard for the second half because with the COVID regulations, it was super important to plan every shot as precise as we can in order to how can we trick closeness where we cannot allow closeness on set due to safety. System Crusher was very different because it was absolute low budget production. So there was no such thing as being able to afford a storyboard artist. So we did little floor plans by ourselves. So I kind of, you know, I, I, I do like to plan, but then leave enough space on set that you can still adapt and change. So yeah, there are floor plans or there are self-scribbled storyboards on the second side of their professional storyboards. And the whole thing about character arcs or visual style happens way, usually way before when me and the DOP, we watch films together and we define color palettes for different characters. And um, we make sure that, you know, when you have so many characters and so many houses and so many, it's, it's collaboration with the production design, of course, to make sure that subconsciously they're so different that you don't get confused as the audience. Because it's, I think the film in the first 10 minutes, you establish nine characters or something it's or or 15 minutes I don't know to check but it is quite a lot to take in and be able to be oriented it it needs a little bit of visual manipulation and was this crew a completely new group of collaborators and creatives that you were working with and how did you go about with the production team finding who you would work with on this film. So it was a complete new team except the editor, Stefan Bechinger, um, who I've worked with since 10 years um, and who, who came uh, with me to the States. And then we worked together until the director's cut. And then Joe Walker took over, which was amazing to work with Joe and who Stefan and I, you know, we were also wishing for um, a second editor to come in. And Joe Walker was always like our absolute number one wish. So it was a fantastic sort of switch from, I would say, a more European art house film with a much slower pace to then, you know, some Hollywood storytelling, another rhythm and um, another power of emotion probably that that joe brought and with the score and composition so beautiful in the um piano that you did you come up with those themes in advance how did you how did that collaboration go and how many notes were you giving to to refine that well i mean katie on stage um she plays in an adaptation of a radiohead piece everything is in its right place which was an idea of our uh, music supervisors. So it's a collaboration, you know, always. I mean, we, we look for things and then we listen to stuff together and all everything that we had before, our ideas were sort of maybe a bit too classical and conservative in a way that we, we, we wanted something very different. In the end, the structure of the edit changed a little bit. So that's why now the before the piece was really a four and a half minute piece. And then the structure shifted 
So now we just hear parts of it. But I mean, that's, that's part of the creative process as well. And with the script on set, were you guys improvising at all? Or was this all as scripted? How much room for play do you leave? I think the character who improvises the most is is Blake, John Brunthal's character. Um, He's so great. <laughs> that yes. performance, I just loved him so much. Yes, he he he's absolutely amazing because on paper, you know, um, it was already a, a great part, but it was also like, it wasn't really clear where this is going just from the lines, you know, is that sort of guy that's very nice to her, although she isn't necessarily nice to him and, um, and, and improvise, letting it improvise with John and finding those little moments when, um, they're just smiling at each other on the fish line, you know, and, and the guy is giving the same speech that he gives Ruth before. That was a completely improvised moment that we basically thought about when we visited that fish factory. So some parts are super scripted and then others have a bit more, I don't know what's the right word, but there was more, more space to, you know, just let it happen. It, it really depends from scene to scene. And having been through a feature with COVID protocols in the pandemic, what, what do you wish you knew at the start of it that you know now <laughs> that you can share with all of us? That's a good question. I'm not yet far enough away from it all to really look back and define what I've learned. It, so many things that it's, um, I'm, I'm still learning, you know, today is the first time I saw the film on the big screen as a movie and because, um, we've been working on it until the very last of the final mix. And then the, the next day when we were supposed to, you know, watch it all together, the final mix, I, I was in the hospital giving birth. <laughs> So, so I've never seen, and then, you know, that I couldn't come to the DCP check. So, so this was for me the first, I, I mean, there were so great people that I could trust, you know, they went and said everything was fine. And I was able to give all my notes and work until the very, very last day of, of the final mix. But then I, I, I never saw it on the run, basically, without us still, you know, without the notepad in my hand. So it's still, the, the learning experience is still going on and filming with COVID. Oh man. I mean, I, I'm just hoping that this pandemic is over soon and, and we can all get back together to normal because film making is so, such a social thing. And it is so much about being with people and feeling the energy. And yes, we did zoom rehearsals and yes, it all works, but do I want to work like that? For the rest of my life, hopefully not. Probably what I've learned is that much more faking is possible than I thought. Because when I knew we would come back filming in summer and half the film is shot in winter and other things happen that didn't match anymore at all, I thought this is going to be <laughs> like an unwatchable film. And it turns out, you know, that it somehow merges together so it even helps the story sometimes because for example when Ruth goes back to her house for the first time is blooming and it's green and it's warmer and it matches her positive 
memories of that place, whereas at the very beginning when she gets out, it's sort of gray and depressing and raining and overcast all the time, that magically it it merges. But when you watch it a second time and just you look at the trees, <laughs> you will see some... <laughs> Leaves, no leaves, leaves, no leaves and stuff, but it's it's less important than I thought. Well, thank you so, so much for this incredible film and for taking the time to speak with us all. It's been so informative to hear your process and just so impressive what you accomplished before and after the pandemic. So, or not after since we're still in it, but congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.